Open your Bible, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. I want to thank Mitch for those songs. Those tie in perfectly with our lesson for the morning. I'm sure you planned that out. Thank you for doing that. Good to see all of you, and it's wonderful to be with you this week. Thank you for the invitation to come and to share in this effort of worshiping together and and studying together and growing together as God's people. There's a lot that I could say about this church and especially my wife's association with this church, and I'm going to save that uh, until uh, probably Friday night of the meeting. We'll have some personal remarks held off until then, but it's great to be with you. I feel like I should tell you that as we begin the meeting this week, that there may be a sermon or two that deviates from what was advertised. I have about 20 lessons that fall under this theme of back to basics. And so depending on how the week goes, based on conversations or assessments that I make throughout the week, I might decide to change a lesson or two here and there. But we're talking about back to basics, some foundational principles of some things. And in our Bible class period this morning, we, we really were talking about a very simple idea, and that is that we must do what God has instructed. Now, we're going to talk later this week about some doctrinal elements, some doctrinal considerations, Uh, but I also have a lesson or two built in this week for some home and family parenting and marriage considerations because it's always good to get back to basics on those topics as well. And so I'm looking forward to spending this week with you. Thank you for being here today and God bless you for being here. Ritual, routine, and familiarity have the potential of producing forgetfulness. When we do something so often, it can become mundane, even thoughtless. And so as a reminder to you, what we as God's people do when we come together on the Lord's day is important. It is very important. Now, it is not important because we have gathered together. It's not our assembly together that makes our purposes here meaningful. It is important because of the one whom we seek to honor when we come together. You see, our purpose in coming together is to worship God Almighty. It is to honor him with our songs. It is to exalt him as we think about him, as we think about his word that he has given. It is he who makes our lives meaningful And so it is he who makes our gathering together on the Lord's day meaningful. It is he alone who is worthy of our praise and our worship. And so may our worship never be about us, 
May our worship never be about those who lead, song leaders, prayer leaders, preachers. We as men are not the focus when we come together. And I wish that we had a better grasp of the significance of our assembly. As we assemble together on the Lord's day, we need to be reminded of why we have come together. What is it that we have assembled to do? What is our purpose in gathering? And simply put, our purpose is to honor our maker. The God of heaven deserves our very best, the best that we can give him as we think of him and as we seek to honor him in our life. And so this morning, I want to talk with you about the God whom we serve. I want to talk about him, especially as it relates to our worship of him. And I want to do that by looking at a number of passages in Scripture, both Old and New Testaments, that show individuals and groups who had an encounter with the God of heaven. What did they see? What did they experience? What kind of impact did that have on them? And what do we take away from that today? So let's start with Isaiah chapter 6, where scripture clearly reveals to us God's greatness. And God has shown his greatness to various men and various peoples throughout history. We begin in Isaiah chapter 6, where the prophet Isaiah has this incredible vision of God. In chapter 6 and verse 1, Isaiah writes, In the year of King Isaiah's death... I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. In the year of King Isaiah's death, I want to suggest to you that that is more than just a simple chronological marker of time. Well, I had this vision when the king died. What happens to a nation when their king is dead? There's the potential for turmoil. Our leader is dead. What's going to happen next? There is the potential for chaos. And in the year that King Isaiah died, Isaiah sees a vision of the king of heaven who is very much alive. He sees God seated on his throne. He is described as lofty and exalted. And the train of his robe, you don't usually think about God wearing a robe, do you? The train of his robe fills the temple. And Isaiah continues in verse 2. He says, Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. Notice the humility of these beings as they are in the presence of God. With two of their wings, they cover their faces, and with two of them, they cover their feet. They are expressing 
these symbols, these signals of humility before the God who sits on the throne. And in verse three, one of them called out to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Place yourself in Isaiah's position and see what he is describing. He has this vision of the majestic, almighty God. And Isaiah's first reaction in verse 5 is to say, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. I am a sinner, and I live amongst sinners. And I have been given this privilege of seeing holy God. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. As Isaiah experiences this vision of God, his humility, and even thoughts of his own sinfulness are the first things that he expresses. Let's look at another passage. Ezekiel chapter one, another prophet of God who sees a similar vision. Ezekiel chapter one, there's a lot of figures and imagery in chapter one that can be very difficult to sort through. But I want you to notice in chapter 1 and verse 26, let's pick up the vision there. Ezekiel says that above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne. So again, he is going to see, as Isaiah did, God seated on his throne. But this throne is a little bit different. This one earlier in the chapter is described as having wheels. And this, this throne can move around in any direction that it wants to go so that God is able to see everything that is happening on the earth. Verse 26, it says, and on that which resembled a throne, high up. Remember, Isaiah said, lofty and exalted, high up, was a figure with the appearance of a man. Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upward, something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire and there was a radiance around him. Now, how does Ezekiel describe this radiance that he saw? Verse 28, it was as the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of, of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. You read this as Ezekiel describes it, and you get the impression that on the one hand, it was terrifying. It was frightening to see what Ezekiel saw, and yet at the same time, it was gloriously beautiful. Just like that beautiful rainbow that comes into the clouds after the rain, when the sun comes out and we see the beauty and the grandeur of that, Ezekiel says, what I saw 
was beautiful. And it was awe-inspiring. In verse 28, he says at the end of the verse, when I saw this, I fell on my face and I heard a voice speaking. I fell on my face. Humility. And that voice that speaks, as you go into chapter two, God will commission Ezekiel and will say to him, I need you to stand up and go preach. How about Revelation chapter one? Revelation chapter one, the apostle John has a vision of Jesus. And Jesus in Revelation 1 is depicted in a way that he is not depicted anywhere else in the scripture. Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, John hears a voice and he says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. That reads something like Ezekiel 1, doesn't it? When Ezekiel said that he saw what looked like glowing metal and fire upon the throne, John sees what he describes as burnished bronze glowing in a furnace. And the voice of this one who was speaking, it was like the sound of many roaring and rushing waters. In verse 16, in his right hand, he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. What John sees is this awe-inspiring vision of Jesus. And it is so awe-inspiring that verse 17, he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Ezekiel said, I bowed my face to the ground. John says, I fell over stunned as if I were dead. These individuals saw visions of God that had a profound impact on their lives. But now let's go to Exodus chapter 19. Because here is not just one person who sees God in an incredible kind of a way, but here it is a group. It is an entire nation, the nation of Israel. And in chapter 19, the Israelites have come to Mount Sinai. And in verse 16, Exodus 19 verse 16, it says, So it came about on the third day when it was morning, that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. 
and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain shook violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. The entire nation of Israel has gathered around this mountain and this is what they see. Smoke, lightning, thunder. They hear the sound of a trumpet that is increasing in its volume and the people quickly understand they are in the presence of God. They will say to Moses, you go up and speak to God, but do not let his voice speak to us because if it does, we will die. And so in chapter 20, in verse 18, the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when they saw it, they trembled and they stood at a distance. And that's when they say, Moses, if we hear the voice of God, we are going to die. All of these people experienced the awe and the wonder of being in the presence of God. And beloved, I want to suggest to you that we need to read passages like these on a regular basis. There are so many people in our world today who, who, who see God as if he is just this mythical creature. And they think about him as, as they sometimes call him the great grandfather in the sky who is just this, this being who wants to spoil people on the earth and he's just nothing but happy and lovey-dovey all the time. And that is not at all the experience of these people when they had visions of God. They saw an awesome, awe-inspiring God in whom they were absolutely terrified because of his power and his greatness. We talk often about the fear of God, and we say, well, you know, there's two kinds of fear, and there's fear that, that means that we're, we're afraid of something, like I have a fear of snakes, and I really do. I have a fear of spiders, and I really do. And I have a fear of cats. Well, I'm not afraid of cats. I just don't like them. I just made some enemies, I think. It's all right. I'm a dog man. We talk about phobias. We have fears of things that we're scared of. And then we talk about, well, in the other sense, though, fear means reverence and respect. And we should fear God and we should reverence God and we should honor God. And that is absolutely right. But listen, God should terrify us too. We should be absolutely scared to death of God. 
Do not fear those who can destroy the body, but can do nothing further, Jesus said. But fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Be afraid of God. Isaiah, Ezekiel, John, and the Israelites were very much afraid. Now, the balance to that point is this. When God is on our side, then we don't have to solely be driven and motivated by that fear. But the scripture warns us about failing to see God's greatness. And there are many throughout history, biblical history, who failed to do that. We talked about Nadab and Abihu this morning in our Bible class period. I want to go back to Leviticus chapter 10, and I want to point your attention to something that we skipped over in our Bible class period. Leviticus chapter 10 we talked in, in the Bible class period about how they did not obey God's instruction, that God had given specific things that he wanted done, commandments that he wanted to be followed, and they didn't follow that. But we need to go a little bit deeper on this. Because when this happens, in chapter 10 and verse 3, after Nadab and Abihu have died, Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. There's a couple of things I want to point out there. God says, by those who come near me. Contextually, would that not be the priest's? The priests who've been consecrated, they are being trained and they are receiving the instruction about how to come near to God. So by these priests, by those who come near to me, first, he says, you better treat me as holy. And the second thing is, if I am not treated as holy then I am not honored by the people whom you serve as their priests. You see, Nadab and Abihu's failure to follow God's instruction was a failure on their part to acknowledge God's holiness. If they believed that God was who he said he was, then the thought of disobeying his instructions would have never entered their minds. If they had the right concept of who God is, then right conduct will follow. The problem is, they didn't see God properly. They didn't treat him as holy. Our view of God dictates everything when it comes to the way we conduct ourselves before God. 
If I am careless and flippant with the word of God and the way that I treat it, that says something about how I view its author, doesn't it? If I am negligent and if I am inconsiderate as I interact with the people of God, that says something about the God whom they serve, doesn't it? Everything ultimately comes back to how I see God. Nadab and Abihu failed to see God properly. And God says, you disobeyed my instruction. You didn't follow my commandment. And he links that to a failure to see his holiness. How about Malachi chapter 1? Malachi chapter 1, the people are worshiping God, but they are doing so irreverently. In chapter 1 and in verse 7, God makes an accusation against them. He says, you're presenting defiled food upon my altar. You're not bringing the best that you have in your worship. In verse 8, he says, when you present the blind for a sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? So here are the Jews bringing their animal sacrifices to God and, and they're finding animals that have broken legs, animals that are blind and sick. Well, God will accept that. Surely God will take that. And in the next expression, God says, would you offer that to your governor? Would you serve that up to him? Would he be pleased with you? And if an earthly ruler would not be pleased with your offering, why do you think I would be pleased with it? You see, a sacrifice has to be meaningful. It has to cost something. If they took that animal with a broken leg to the market and tried to sell it, they're not getting top dollar for that. They take that sheep that's blind or sickly, they're not selling that for top dollar. And they know that. And so they're saying, well, let's just put that on the altar and give that to God. He'll be pleased with that. And so in verse 10, God says, oh, that there was someone among you who would shut the doors. <laughs> if this is the kind of worship you're going to offer, just shut the doors to the church house. Don't even come because I will not accept this. You see, we must see God's greatness. We must see and feel within us what Isaiah and Ezekiel and John saw and felt because we don't want to make the mistake of failing to see God correctly. So what kind of effect does this have on us in a practical way? How does this affect us? I want to suggest three things, and we're going to run through the first two very quickly, and we'll spend more time on the third one. The first way that this has an effect on us is that it affects our view of sin. 
When we see, as Isaiah did, the holiness and the splendor of God, you remember what Isaiah's first words were. Woe is me. I am a man of sin. That's the first thing he said. When he saw the purity and the majesty of God, he first saw his own shortcomings. And when we see God as Isaiah did, our attitude towards sin will change. We will stop taking such a dismissive and blasé attitude towards sin, both our own sins and the sins of the world around us. And so as people whose sins have been forgiven by the blood of Christ, we need to be reminded of what Christ has done for us in taking away our sins as we come together on the Lord's day to worship the God who made it so. This affects us, secondly, as we think about God's truth. If we see God for who he is, then we will view God's word with the same respect and reverence. Recognizing God's holiness prevents us from being careless with God's truth. Can't you hear Nadab and Abihu saying things like, well, you know, I don't really think God would care if. Or surely God would not make a big fuss over. Well, I know the scripture says this, but I think if we view God properly, we won't talk like that. These matters are not up to us. These are things that God has already decided. These are things that God has already written in his word. And if we view him properly, we will view his word properly. And then thirdly, and this is the one that I'd like to spend a little more time on. We will view worship itself in a better way if we see God as we should. I wanna to speak to you very candidly and, and very plainly for the next few minutes. And I, I, I feel like I need to say this right up front, okay? I don't know this church. Yes, I know some people in this church, but, but what I am saying to you is on an outline that I wrote months ago. Okay, so what I'm about to say, you might be the man's preacher's been reading our mail. I, I haven't, all right? I, I, I've talked to no one in this church about these matters. But I will tell you where what I'm about to say comes from. I've traveled to preach a number of places in recent years, and I've seen some things as I have traveled around. Just little things, usually, little trends that I've noticed. And I've talked with other preachers and elders and say, hey, I, I'm seeing this. Are you seeing this too? What, what do you think about this? So what I'm about to say is, is my own opinion, and I'm not trying to make some kind of assessment about the Northfield Church. But I am giving a warning. 
I fear that as God's people today, we are allowing an attitude of casualness to creep into our worship of God. I, I don't say this to, to shame or, or rebuke or certainly not even to, to condemn, but, but I am about to say some things as just gentle warnings and things that I'd like for us to think about because I've seen things as I have traveled around and I've talked with others. Many places I go, I feel like I've noticed that dress in worship has become more casual and more relaxed. The idea of a Sunday best is a dying idea in many places. Oh, God doesn't care how we dress. And to a point, I think that's true. And yet all of us would have a point on a spectrum where we would be uncomfortable and where we would think God would be uncomfortable. Well, the Bible doesn't say anything about a Sunday best. Well, not in such words. Of course, that's exactly right. But there are principles in scripture that speak to that concept. Let me show you some examples. Go to Genesis chapter 41. Genesis 41, this is the story of Joseph. Joseph has been rotting in a prison for years. And the Pharaoh has a dream and he wants someone to interpret his dream, but his own wise men, his own Egyptian magicians can't interpret the dream. So, so it is remembered that there is a man named Joseph among the Israelite people. He's rotting away in prison. Send for Joseph and let him come and interpret your dream. So look at chapter 41 and verse 14. Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. Now I know that's not talking about God's people assembling together for worship, but is there a principle there? You don't appear before the king of your nation in torn, dirty, ratty clothes with a long Billy Gibbons beard. ZZ Top, yeah? Joseph is dirty and disheveled. I don't have anything against beards, by the way. I tried to grow one last winter, but mine is like luck of the Irish red. And my hair is not. And I had this two-tone thing going on. It looked bad. So I got rid of that very quickly. One of my daughters came up and she said, Dad, this just ain't working. So I got rid of that. I love the idea of a beard. I just can't pull it off. But Joseph cleans himself up before he goes into the presence of Pharaoh. What about Exodus chapter 19, the passage we were looking at earlier? Exodus 19, and in verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, Exodus 19, verse 10, go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments. Let them be ready for the third day, for on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. I'm giving you three days advance notice, go do your laundry. Now, why does that matter? 
Well, the people have been out wandering around in the desert. They're dirty and their clothes are dusty. And, and God says, I want you to wash your clothes. In Northwest Alabama, I have a Christian friend who's a banker, retired banker. He's an elder at a church there where I held a meeting several years ago. And he used to be the executive commercial loan officer for his bank. And he told me that their banks, like many businesses, had a casual Friday. So every week, people could wear a little more relaxed attire, jeans, maybe a polo shirt, golf shirt, or something like that. But he said, you know, one of our branches, instead of doing casual Friday, they said, we're going to do every day as casual day. Over time, he said, the bank at that particular branch started getting bad remarks from customers. People were leaving reviews about their customer service and saying it wasn't good quality and people weren't as helpful. Uh, people weren't displaying the same degree of professionalism. And, and so when they started getting all of these bad reviews pouring in, he said the, the leaders of that bank, the, the management, they, they came together and said, what is going on? And they realized that all of that started happening not too long after they went to casual clothing every day. He said there was something about Casual clothing that led to casual interaction with customers. And so they quit casual days and they went back to more professional attire and their ratings improved. That's a subconscious thing. It's not something they were doing knowingly, but it just crept in and it had an influence. You need to think about the importance of being on time. Here in Exodus 19, God said, be ready for the third day. I'm coming in three days. You be ready. You don't get the impression that the Israelites were saying, hey, when, when did he, what did he say about that? What, what time do you think he's coming? I mean, I got a golf game. I would really love to go to the sand traps out here in the wilderness are terrible, but I still like to play. No, this was an event that they didn't want to miss. And yet in our home congregation, we struggle with this. What I've said to you thus far and, and what I'm still about to say, th these are things that I have said to my home congregation. So again, th this is not a, you know, I'm coming here to attack Northfield or anything like that. These are things that I think need to be said everywhere. Because what we do here on the Lord's day is important. And it's important because of the God whom we serve. So I'm gonna suggest this idea to you, something that we need to think about. Anything that one generation tolerates, the next generation will embrace. Anything one generation tolerates, the next one will embrace. It's true in the culture. It's true in the church.
50 years ago, do you remember what they said about abortion? We just want it to be safe, legal, and rare. Rare, as our nation has killed 70 million babies. Rare. All we want is for safe, legal, and rare. 50 years ago. Now, we have legislation in California and in other states in the union where legislators are pushing for on-demand abortions up to the moment of birth. We have embraced what an earlier generation introduced and tolerated. It happens in religious settings as well. Changes in worship started off with something like a simple instrument being introduced into the worship, just a simple piano. But now, we've gone completely into the rock and roll band with the lighting and the special effects and churches have become venues of entertainment. What happened? One generation opened the door and the next generation kicked it open and walked right through it with full steam. We could cite other examples. Churches that grow more casual in their attitude and in their worship begin with small steps that slowly find their way in. And I feel like some of these small steps I've seen in a lot of places, including my home congregation. And so we talk about matters like this. We talk about the God whom we serve and how we should come before him and come into his presence. And we must never be casual because being in the presence of God is not something to be casual about. If we're not thoughtful, we might fall into this trap. We might say to ourselves, well, if I could just see with my eyes what Isaiah saw with his, then I'll tell you, I, I would get it. I would see the majesty of God and I would be in awe and in wonder of the power of God if I could only see with my eyes what Ezekiel saw with his. But if we think that, we're fooling ourselves. And you know how I know that? I know that because of Israel at Exodus 19. At Mount Sinai, when they saw the presence of God and the power of God on that, on that mountain, and then just days later, griping and complaining to Moses, oh, let us go back to Egypt. At least we had cucumbers back there. At least we could go back and have melons. Yeah, but you also had chains too. Did you forget that part? Did you forget the whip that was going across your back by your Egyptian taskmasters? How quickly 
They forgot how horrible their circumstances were without God. And how quickly we might do the same. So what we do here on the Lord's day is important. Because we come before the God of heaven who through his grace and mercy has chosen to make us his own. And we come together to honor him. So when Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on his throne, he said, my eyes have seen the king. Isaiah saw his king. He saw his redeemer, but he also saw his own sin. And he saw an angel of God come to him and cleanse him of his sin so that he could stand in the presence of the king of heaven. What about you today? Do you see what Isaiah saw? That yes, God is holy and powerful. That he is the almighty God of heaven who spoke the worlds into existence. That he is the king who rules over all. But he is also the one who can cleanse your sin so that you can stand in his presence. God has still made your cleansing possible if you would receive it. And so there may be someone here this morning who needs to do that because you do see the glory and the majesty of God, but you do see your sin. So let the Lord cleanse you and let him do that this morning. Even now, would you come forward as we stand together and sing?